Hey, South Bend City Church, Mariah here, the Director of Art and Worship. Just wanted to say Happy New Year. Thank you for joining us in this first week of January 2024. We're so grateful that whether you're local or long distance, you consider South Bend City Church to be your community. So welcome. A few things to keep in front of you before we get to today's teaching. First of all, a reminder of where we've been. In December, we told you about a way to practice generosity over this holiday season, our Christmas offering. Just as a reminder, this money that you give to this fund goes to several partners both in the world and here in South Bend. The money given to this offering will be split between our world partners, Redeemer Central and Belfast, our friends at the Telos Group, our community partner, La Casa de Amistad, and some will also go to our local South Bend City Church Advent Guide, which will be available this Advent in 2024. For more information on how that money will be split or how that money will help these partners, you can head to our special podcast episode, which we released at the end of November. We're shooting for a $40,000 goal for this Christmas offering, and I wanted to let you know that we are at $35,508.59. Now, for those of you that love to see things come to completion, we decided to leave this open for one more week to see if we could get there. So if you're looking for a way to practice generosity, I encourage you to jump into that, which is in the show notes below, or you can give to our general fund or the Tribune Project. All of those links are included in our give page. Another update, if you are a part of our in-person community or live close to South Bend, we've got a new to South Bend City Church table coming up on February 4th, right after our 11 a.m. gathering. This table is specifically for those who consider themselves to be new. Maybe you've only joined us one time, or maybe you've been joining us for several months but have yet to have some of your questions answered. You can join us on February 4th in person at Studebaker 112. Like I said, after the 11 a.m. gathering, we'll share a meal together, and you'll also have the opportunity to meet some other people who consider themselves to be new, have the chance to meet some staff, and ask any question that you have about our community. If you can't join us for this, just know that there will be more opportunities in the future, including digital offerings, which will come later in the year. All right, that's all for reminders today. So as we enter the new year, this weekend we asked ourselves, how do we set an intention for our lives that's worthy of our vision? And how do we respect the terrain that we're walking on that path? This teaching included an audio excerpt from Howard Thurman's baccalaureate ceremony speech at the Spelman College, and you can hear the whole thing at the link in the show notes below. Thanks again for joining us, and thanks for being a part of our community. Let's jump in with the rest of our community now. Uh, last year, a buddy and I developed a vision for a particular path that we wanted to walk together, and I mean that quite literally. Uh, we wanted to do some backpacking. And the terrain that we were going to be backpacking was going to be the Colorado Rocky Mountains in winter. And so we scoured all trails and found something that looked quite fitting. It was going to be 18 miles over three days with 4,000 feet of vertical gain. And if you're thinking to yourself, wow, I didn't know Jay did that. I don't. This is all new to me. Uh, But I like the adventure. And one thing I know about myself is if I go too long without mountains, something begins to atrophy inside me. There's just something about the big, wide-open spaces of mountains that keep things open inside me. And so I was eager for that, and I was eager for a new challenge. And my buddy has done a lot of this stuff, and so I trusted him and thought it would be a good thing to try. And so, like I said, we scoured all trails, and we found this path, and we set out on it. And at first, it was just stunning and beautiful. I brought you a couple of pictures just to show off. 
this is a, a waterfall that we ran into. You, you can barely see the waterfall buried there in the ice, but there's flowing water there, which is amazing because at this point on the trail, it's getting down to like five degrees every night and it's below freezing during the day. And yet there's this running uh, waterfall there that was really quite stunning. And then this is our campsite the first night. Next picture. You kind of get a feel for the terrain that we were in there. Uh, take note for the angle of the tent. That'll matter later. Uh, the fire really matters as well. Uh, not just to keep us warm because, like I said, it's like five degrees, but also because almost all of our food is these like freeze-dried pre-made packs that you open up and you dump boiling water in, you stir it for a bit, and that's how you make your breakfast and your lunch and your dinner. And that especially matters when your body's burning like 4,000, 5,000 calories a day, climbing 4,000 feet of vertical in the winter with a pack on, especially if you've packed your pack too heavy. See, like I had read all the warnings about light packing, but I got a little cocky about it. I'm like, man, I've been working out. I can handle this. I'm still young and spry, and I don't have too much stuff in my pack. So I thought, why not bring the pair of binoculars that were better suited to like sit at the wheel of a captain's ship, and they weigh like four pounds, you know what I'm saying? I thought, well, we're going to be out there in the woods, so of course I have to bring my travel humidor for my cigars. <laughs> it's a travel humidor. It's not that heavy. At least that's what I thought until I... <laughs> felt its weight in my pack. You guys, we, we set out on the hike, and I can make it like 15 yards without having to stop and breathe. Now, we'd even done like altitude adjustment. Like I got to Denver days in advance so I could sleep at 5,000 feet for a few nights. We'd done a day hike up to 10,000 feet and back so I could sort of test my acclimation to the lack of oxygen up there. But I did not think about that like 30 or 50-pound pack or whatever it was I was wearing, like it starts putting pressure on my pelvis and I start wondering about my bone density and whether it can handle it, right? So anyway, like we're out there hiking and it's beautiful and it's hard, way, way harder than I thought it would be. I'm sweating so much that even if it's like 10 degrees out, I'm just wearing a t-shirt. I have a jacket, but I'm just wearing a t-shirt because I'm that hot from the work. And as it starts to get dark the first night, we decided we'd better find a place to set up camp because you don't want to be doing that after dark out there where it's very, 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 very dark, right? And so we find a place to set up camp. And, you know, I'm kind of like recovering from the day, and I'm thinking this is really beautiful, and I'm really happy I'm out here, although I'm really intimidated about the next two days' hikes because this is just the first third of a three-day trip, and I'm thinking this day was this hard, and I came in fresh, you know what I'm saying? Like well-slept, rested, without bruises on my pelvis that I now have, and I got to handle the next two days of more elevation game and high-altitude experience. And I'm just kind of like thinking through all this while I'm taking in the beauty. And then my lighter stops working. We have two lighters on the trip because, you know, we're responsible. And so we have two, but my lighter stops working. And so we get the fire lit with the other lighter, the one remaining means of fire that we have on the trip, because we had not thought about the fact that we might want to bring some other means of lighting, like flint and tinder alongside lighters. And I had not thought about the fact that it turns out that certain kinds of butane lighters don't work so well at 10,000 feet, because fire needs oxygen, and there's less oxygen at 10,000 feet. So we're sitting there, and I'm thinking through, like, man, I am way more exhausted than I thought I was going to be. And this terrain is way more challenging than I thought it was going to be. And now we're down to one lighter, and we've got two more days to go. So I didn't sleep that well that night. I mean, part of it was the fact that in spite of the fact that I'd rented, like, a sub-zero-degree sleeping bag, and I was sleeping in my parka and in my sweatpants and in my winter socks with a hat on, I'm still freezing, watching my breath crystallize in the air and form ice on the inside of the tent while we're sleeping that night. It might have been the fact that, like I mentioned, the tent was at approximately a 15-degree incline on the slope. 
I'm not kidding. We built a wall of wood logs at the foot of the tent to keep it sliding down the snow-covered mountain, as might be the case. Or maybe the thing that rattles me is a conversation I'd had with my hiking buddy right before we called it a night, which was this. He says to me, I'm so glad I found out that we can do winter backpacking. (laughs) I said, I thought you've done this before. And he said, why did you think that? And I said, I don't know, maybe because for the last six months, you've been saying things like, you know, when we set up our tent on snow, here's how we do it. Or, you know, you're going to want to make sure that you have this thicker uh, sleeping pad because, like, we need that kind of thicker heat out there. And I said, why did you say those things if you've never done it? And he said, oh, I've read about it. (laughs) So I'm in the tent thinking, like, I don't know how this is going to go. And I think I might need to break some hard news to my friend when we wake up in the morning because I don't want to be a story on 60 Minutes about a pastor from Indiana who has never seen or heard from again, right? We wake up and, guys, the best thing happens, which is his lighter stops working too. Because now I have an unimpeachable case that we have to turn around. Now, this whole time we've had our phones off, both because that was part of our aspiration for the trip and because there's no signal out there anyway, so it wouldn't do you any good to have a phone on, which is comforting to think about if you need a rescue, right? So we don't have our phones on, but I do know that GPS actually still works even if there's no cell signal. It can still connect on the map, and later you can figure out where you were. And so I thought it'd be nice to at least like mark the spot so we can see where we landed at the end of this trip before we turn around and go home, right? Now, again, I'm reminding you, this is an 18-mile loop. And so the goal was roughly six miles a day for three days, right? And we were using like actual manual printed maps along the way, and we were tracking features on the map. And again, my buddy who's done this before seems to be pretty good at it. (laughs) And he estimates that we're between six and seven miles into the trip, which is another reason that we decided to set up camp when we did. That's the goal, six or seven miles a day, and you knock this thing out in three days. We get back to the car, and I reconnect my phone so that the dropped pin on the map can be tracked. And I find out that we barely made it three miles. (laughs) Which means to do the loop, and by the way, a loop means that you can't just turn, I mean, you can turn back, right? But a loop is different than an out and back, right? Like, the farther you go in, the more you gotta like work to get your way all the way around. So that means the next two days, we would have to tackle seven and a half miles a day, which is two and a half times as much distance as we traversed the first day. And the first day I thought was gonna kill me. And that's the day I was fresh, right? So thank God we turned around, and it was a beautiful experience, but I tell you that story for one simple reason. It's the new year, and I don't care how beautiful your vision is or what path you want to walk. If you're naive about the terrain and the tools, it's not going to go well for you. I'm all for, like, having a path that you want to walk in the new year, like a beautiful vision for, like, where you want to go. That's really, really good, right? But if you have that and yet you're naive about the terrain that you're walking, the environment that you're in, the map around you, the things that you're up against, if you're naive about those things, or if you don't have the right tools to travel with you, it's not going to go well for you. And so today I wanted to talk a little bit about the terrain and the path, uh, because it is a new year, and I hope that you felt some sense of hope this year. I, mean, I know, I know like, like, like it's complicated. I, we did a little prayer huddle before the gathering this morning, and I just kind of confessed to our team. I'm coming into today with two... Uh, paradoxical feelings. One is really big excitement for the year ahead, and the other is a little bit of overwhelm at the thought of the year ahead. We've got some big stuff going on in our church life, a big move coming around the corner. So I feel all of that. I don't know what you felt coming into the new year. I hope you've got some vision 
I hope you think about for a moment like what a miraculous, powerful gift it is that we're given another moment, another year, another chance to renew a vision, to take some new steps, to have a fresh take at life. Like that's amazing to me. Um, but let's not be naive about the terrain that we're walking before we get a vision for the path that we're on and how we're going to walk it. Um, this idea of being aware of the terrain, the landscape, the things that you're up against as you walk. Uh, I also see this all over the writings of Scripture, but I would say that it's in there in a way that you can miss it really easily. It's something the writers demonstrate so often that you can miss it, the way the fish misses the water they're swimming in when you're reading the book. But let me just give you a couple of examples of moments where the writers of Scripture seem deeply aware, they're not naive at all, about the terrain that they and their people are walking as they walk the path that they're aiming for, right? First example, uh, if you've been around for a while, this is not new information for you, but I want to draw your attention to it in this particular frame of not being naive about the path that you're walking. And it comes from the experience of the Israelites coming out of exile. So the Israelites um, in the ancient time, they, they, they go through a couple of rounds of, of defeat and exile. This is a brutal dehumanizing experience that drags them away from their homeland and subjugates them to other powers. And in that experience of Babylonian exile, it seems that they would have become acquainted with a story that was commonly told in the ancient world. And the story that was commonly told in the ancient world, whether it's Babylon or Egypt or other places in the ancient Near East, goes something like this. It's basically that like, there are a few special people on planet Earth, and these few special people bear the image of God. Uh, the elite, perhaps. The men, perhaps the king or the queen, this, this is a common story told in the ancient world, that, that people bear the image of God, but only the special ones. Uh, I've told you this before, but you remember King Tut, the pharaoh from Egypt, whose gold mask was on the cover of National Geographic, at least when I was growing up, very exciting, right? His name, King Tutankhamun, literally means the living image of the god Amun. And so for those Egyptian people, like, it wasn't a big idea to them that a human being could bear the image of God, but for them it was the king or the pharaoh or the elite that did so, right? Now, with that kind of awareness, with that kind of like head-on-a-swivel awareness of the terrain around them, imagine how radical and powerful it is for the writer of Genesis 1 to say this. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness. Not let us make the king in our image and likeness. Let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That text is like a passive-aggressive subtweet. You know what a subtweet is? It's when you sort of make reference to something going on or somebody out there without naming them directly, and you throw shade at them. That's what's happening in this passage. It's a, sort of a subtweet at this, this context around them, the terrain that they've been walking for a very long time that says very few special people bear the image of God, and it's with that awareness that we receive this radical idea that everyone does. How about another example of awareness of what's going on around you? So uh, if you fast forward to the first century... You've got uh, people living at the time of the Roman Empire, and that Roman Empire is putting upon people a very particular vision of divine power and peace. A very particular vision of divine power and peace. This is what God's power looks like. This is how God's peace comes. 
And the vision of divine power and peace that is saturating that world is the one that's manifested by the Roman emperors and their armies that are conquering the world around them through sword. There's an inscription from the year 9 BCE that reads like this. It celebrates the birthday of the god Augustus. By the way, Augustus, that's the name of the emperor. Don't lose that, right? The birthday of the god Augustus as the beginning of the good news. That's the inscription from 9 BC. It celebrates the birthday of the god Augustus as the beginning of the good news. What kind of good news? Well, they seem to be saying or implying or arguing that, like, that this is a vision of divine power and peace that we have received through this man in power. And if you look closely at that vision of divine power and peace, it doesn't look very peaceful. And the kind of power that it brings is the power of the sword that wreaks vengeance against anybody who stands in its way. But again, that's the kind of thing that permeates that world so deeply, so uniformly, that unless you're aware of it, unless you take note of it, you might just miss what it's doing to you. But the writers of the New Testament and their experience of Jesus seem to be aware that on that terrain, they're meant to walk a different path. So when Mark 1.1, one of the biographies of Jesus, begins like this, note the awareness of the terrain that they are walking in with that cult of emperor worship. When Mark 1.1 grabs that same language, that's applied to the emperor and gets reapplied to Jesus. This is exactly the same language in Mark 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. These are people who want to walk a different path toward a different kind of power and peace, but they do it with a radical awareness of the terrain that they are walking. And for you and me, like setting out in a new year, uh, I'm going to talk about the terrain and then the path for a moment here today. Uh, but let's talk about the terrain that we are in. And I name the things that I name on the terrain right now because of the challenges they present to the path that I think we want to walk. So I'll get to that path in a moment. Uh, I'll warn you, this is the part of the sermon that sounds like I'm, like I'm really grumpy and I've had a bad day and I think the world's terrible. That's not actually my disposition. So before I get into this, let me just clarify. I think the world is a big, beautiful, sacred place. I think there is more that is right in the world than is wrong in the world in any given moment in all the history of the universe. I really believe that in my bones. That being said, let's talk about it. So uh, the terrain that we are walking. Let me just give you a few examples of the terrain that we are walking in that you might not have thought about, that might not have like, been brought to your attention as they present some kind of challenges to the path that we want to walk on that terrain. Uh, first, uh, I'll reach uh, to a philosopher named Charles Taylor, who's written a really compelling book called A Secular Age. And Taylor argues in a way that's been so convincing that really a lot of other people have taken up his thesis and agreed with it. He basically argues that for the last 200 to 500 years, we live in a world um, where all these different forces and developments have come together to teach us to see everything in what he calls an imminent frame. And by imminent frame, he basically just means that like, we go through the world and there's the things that we can see and taste and touch and smell and hear. There's material reality. There's concrete things. There's the things that science can measure and test and empirically observe. We've ended up in a world where it's tempting to think that that's all there is. That all there is is the imminent frame, the thing that's right in front of you, the thing that you can taste and touch and smell and see and hear, the concrete reality of matter, the things that you can measure and test the way that science measures and tests. By the way, aren't you grateful that we came up with science? Because so many amazing things have been developed that are good for humanity based on the fact that we decided we would focus on some of the things that we could measure and test. But be careful because you might find yourself walking a terrain where it's hard to remember or believe that there's more to you than what you can measure and test. And there's more to your neighbor and more to your enemy and more to creation than what you can measure and test. Um, that's part of the landscape that we're walking right now. 
By the way, as I was thinking about that, I was thinking some of you like, probably have like, social media feeds that are full of like, crazy woo-woo spiritual stuff, right? And you're like, I don't know, man. It seems like we're like, more into that than ever. And I would argue, I think that's the soul's rebellion against what I just described. It's an eruption within that is resisting that attempt to reduce everything to what you can see, taste, touch, smell, and hear, to reduce everything to what you can empirically measure. And I think that's a beautiful revolution, even if we got to figure out what to do with it, right? Uh, another aspect of the terrain that we're walking today, and again, this might sound like grumpy preacher man, just hang with me, I promise it gets better, uh, is that we live in a world more than ever where I think we're having a hard time believing or seeing that there's more to us and more to the world around us than what can be exploited for profit. Fancy term for this is like late-stage capitalism. I'm a big fan of good business. I'm so great. Business is a beautiful thing. What a wonderful thing that we can create things and, and earn for ourselves the things that we need. Big fan of business. I'm not a big fan of a world that increasingly is able to see everything through the way that it can be exploited for profit. I mean, this is a, an advancing development, and... Uh, good historians will point out that it hasn't always been this way. There have been different phases and stages and characters of capitalistic environments, but we live in one that more than ever can turn a dollar out of anything, which suggests that it's harder for us to remember that there is more to us and more to those around us and more to the world around us than can be exploited for profit. Uh, let's talk about like new media and devices. We did a series on this not too long ago, but I want to bring it back for a moment. Uh, we're having a hard time believing um, that there are things worth paying attention to that don't come on a screen. Now, by the way, I bet if I surveyed the room and I asked you, do you believe there are things worth paying attention to that don't come on a screen? Of course we'd say yes. I don't think that we've like consciously adopted that conviction, right? But what matters isn't your conviction. What matters is the way that our behaviors have been coerced toward that view, whether you know it or not, right? Again, we did a whole series about this, so I won't belabor the point, but I'll just remind you uh, that we live in a world where all that profit-making really matters, and companies with some of the smartest people in the world have managed to put devices in our pockets and then design programs whose entire goal is to keep your attention because they make all of their money based on your attention. Right? Every second you spend on that screen, that's the commodity that they are mining out of your life and selling to others. And so I, I don't think that we would take a survey and say that in my core list of convictions is the idea that screens are all that matter, but... We're being coerced into a state of attention that implements that view, whether you like it or not, right? Uh, there's been a lot of arguing lately about whether we're truly more polarized than we've ever been. There are different takes on this, but I think there's really compelling data to say that we are. I mean, ever is a strong word, <laughs> maybe in recent memory. Uh, I've referenced this book before, but Why We're Polarized is a synthesis of a lot of research by a journalist named Ezra Klein. And he points out like really striking data. There's some basic things, like for example, more than ever, if you're a Democrat, you definitely live in a high-density urban setting, and if you're a Republican, you don't. That's just statistically true in a way that it's never been true before. In fact, Klein points this out from social psychologists. There's hard data behind this. They can accurately predict a million things about your worldview and who you're in relationship based on the answer to one question. Do you shop at Whole Foods or Walmart? This is true. This is true. Uh, he calls it identity stacking. More and more forces are, are happening to to drive us into worlds where all of our conversations and all of our information come from one worldview and one category of experience and leave us more alienated from people who have other categories of experience or worldview. That's part of the terrain that we're walking right now, and it leaves us, um, I think, having a harder time ever remembering or believing that we belong to each other, that all of us belong to each other. 
And even worse than polarization, although the polarization is a pretext for this next thing, is dehumanization. The polarization you know, creates othering categories, puts distance between us and the people that we've forgotten that we belong to. And once we put distance there, we can begin to stop thinking that they're human at all. I think for one example of um, the rhetoric that refer to the Palestinians as Gaza, as animals, just all of them. I mean, that's um, a kind of dehumanizing rhetoric that's been applied in a lot of different ways to a lot of different groups of people, but that's part of the terrain that we are walking right now. And even worse is, uh, like, the way that Christian religion is getting baptized into that effort, right? Now, quick side note. First of all, it's not just the Christians who do that. Every religion has its dark side in the ways that it gets used for those kinds of things. And this is not the only moment when that's happened. And I think sometimes we get so myopic, we think it's only the Christians and it's only now that this has ever happened. That's not true. But it is part of the terrain that we are walking right now, this sort of dehumanization that brings religion into its project and baptizes it and pretends that it's holy to do that to people who don't look like us or believe like us. Um, and maybe another word for all of that, for the terrain that we're walking right now, is um, that it's a bit of a desecrated terrain. Uh, a terrain that, um, in fact, carries the weight of the sacred, but where we are having a hard time seeing it and honoring it in ourselves and others. Um, we read from Genesis 1 there, every human being made in the image of God. And here I want to move from the terrain to the path, because I think the path that we want to walk is one that resists those forces specifically because we have been told, we, we are learning to trust what our mantra says, everyone an icon, that every human being is a sacred bearer of the image of God. Every man, every woman, every person is a sacred bearer of the image of God. And we want to walk a path that honors that sacred gift in ourselves and others. It's the gift that shows up in Genesis 1 where we read, let us make humanity in our image. It's the gift in Genesis 2 where we have this profound poetic image of God stooping down in the second telling of creation where he shapes clay or dust into human form and then breathes into that dust divine spirit. That that's the definition of being a human in the Bible. In Genesis 9, after the whole crazy ark thing with Noah and the animals and all that, right, we get the first prohibition against murder. This is the first time, and maybe you're thinking it's about time, nine chapters in, but, you know, whatever. Uh, nine chapters in, we get the first biblical prohibition against murder. And murder is outlawed not just because it offends modern sensibilities or causes other problems. Murder is outlawed on a sacred ground because that person, whoever you kill, is made in the image of God. And so to commit violence against your neighbor, your enemy, your brother, your sister, to commit violence against a person is to commit blasphemy against God. And so like from the beginning, the, the scripture is like inviting us into a path where we learn how to honor the sacred in ourselves and others. And right now we might be walking a terrain that makes that difficult. But for the new year ahead, I'm trying to argue like it would be a good year and a beautiful year if our goals, if, if the path that we want to walk is one where we press further into this promise, into this like human calling into this gift, that there's more to you and more to your neighbor and more to your family members and more to your enemies. There's the sacred in them, expressed through them, given to the world for our benefit. What a profound path to walk, even if the terrain for that path is hard right now. Uh, there's more to you uh, than simply what we can measure and test. You know that? Like, you are more than uh, the object of a scientific inquiry. 
that looks at you as some empirical, concrete, material object in the world. There's more to you than what we can measure and test. And there might be a lot around you that suggests that that's all there is, but I'm just here to tell you there's more to you than that. And in spite of that terrain that resists it, I think the path that we want to walk is one that honors it, right? There's more to you than what you can produce financially, you know? There's more to you than the worth that can be distilled in some sort of spreadsheet analysis of cost-benefit. I mean, there's just simply more to you than that. And it might be the case that we live in a world that has a hard time naming that. And one of the hard things about that is dollars and cents just feel so tangible and concrete, don't they, right? Like, you may have a hard time looking back on the past year and naming what you contributed to the world, but you get your W-2 sometime in the next few weeks, and it'll have a cold, hard number on it, right? And there's something about that that feels so tangible that it's hard to press into the deeper truth that there's more to you than that, right? There's more to you than uh, when your attention gets dragged away by a screen. There's the contribution that you make when you're not enslaved to those devices. There's more to you than uh, the way that you've been typed by other people from other camps or groups who look at you from a distance and decide that you don't belong to their group, and so you're this or you're that. There's, there's more to you than that, you know? There's more to you than the dehumanizing experiences that you have suffered in the world. And in all these ways, there's also more to everyone else that you encounter. And they are worth more than what we can extract from them for wealth. And they are worth more than, uh, than what we see when we measure and test them. There's, there's more here. And I think that that's the path that we want to walk in spite of the terrain that we have here. Now, um, as I say that, like, just to get our minds and our hands further on this, I wonder if you would think for me, with me for a moment. Uh, when's the last time you bumped into something true that shook you? It could just be like somebody said something true. Maybe you, you, you read a truth or you heard it in a song lyric. Or the, the rare incisive tweet that actually named something really well. Or a friend who looked you in the eye and told you a truth that you were having a hard time. You ever bumped into a truth that's so clear that you realized you needed to revere it a little bit? Like it rang at a deeper level within you. Like something within you recognized it for what it was, right? Or you ever see something so deeply good that it stirs you? An act of sacrifice or bravery or love or commitment that's extraordinary. Maybe the person that you're in a relationship offered that to you. Maybe you read about it from a distance, but you saw something so good or noble or right that it stirred something deep in you. Or maybe it was something beautiful. It was a, a work of art or a film or a sunrise or a sunset or a song or a beat that, that stirred something so deep inside you that you knew that you were bumping into more than what can be measured or tested. You were bumping into more that could be exploited for profit. You were bumping into something more than what could be like just distilled in a screen or a tweet. You were, you were bumping into the more, and the more inside you recognize the more inside that thing. That's what I'm talking about, like walking the path that lives in greater awareness of that more for ourselves and for others, that aligns our lives and our actions and the world that we build with that more in ourselves and others. And even though we might be up against a difficult terrain walking that path, I think that's a vision for the year that's worthy of your life and mine. What I'm talking about is um, it's more than ethical. Although everyone an icon and the idea that God's image is given to all of us, it does call for an ethic, right? It does demand things of the ways that we treat each other. But what, what, I'm, what I'm reaching for is a, is a little uh, stranger than that. It's not just ethical. I would say it's kind of mystical. 
And I don't mean to make that sound like top shelf for y'all. I, I just mean to say like the kind of everyday experience that a lot of us have been talked out of that we keep having, whether you name it or not, which is that we keep bumping into God in that deep reserve within that names and knows the, the more that we feel and see, right? And hopefully you felt it in yourself and hopefully you felt it in others, but if it's been a while, I want to tell you that's okay too. Some writers speak of this thing that I'm talking about as a kind of sacred fire within, like a holy fire that's been lit, you know? And I fear that some of us believe that that fire has just gone out, that it's just not there anymore. And I get that because I can name many seasons, even very recently, where I have lived a great distance from that fire, where I've been too distracted by it or too ashamed for it or having a hard time embracing it, but... I'm just here to tell you, like, it doesn't go out because you're not the one who sustains it. You're not the one who fuels it. You're not the one who gives it. You're not the one who keeps it going. It's there whether you honor it or not. But we can choose to honor it. We can choose to embrace it. We can choose to wrap our lives around its warmth and its light. And we can choose to also learn how to honor that warmth and light in other people, especially across lines of impossible difference where we are having the hardest time seeing it and honoring it. And so what I'm suggesting for you is um, what I think is a beautiful and worthy path for the year ahead. Something like worthy of the dignity of your life uh, that we would spend the year pursuing everyone an icon in ourselves and in others. That we would spend a year honoring that holy fire within in ourselves and others. And that we do it without being naive about the terrain that we are up against. Um, now, next week, by the way, I want to talk more about the tools because I don't want you up there on the mountain with no lighters working. <laughs> so next week, we'll talk more about the tools. Also, just a heads up, this might sound shocking to you. This might be scandalous to you. I'm going to propose that church is part of the tools. I'm just going to own that. Uh, and I get that there are a million ways that individual instantiations of this project have worked against this path. I get that. I totally understand that. Uh, we do our best to name that and own that around here, but that doesn't change the fact that, that we, we need the best tools that we can get, practices of community and belonging, and we need to avail ourselves of elders who have walked these paths before, and I think church at its best is a project for that. But today, uh, we're just talking about the path and the terrain. Uh, I suspect you've got uh, resolutions for the year. I, I hope you do. I mean, if you don't, that's okay, too. I'm not mad at you. Um, but I hope you have some sense that a new year has new possibilities within it, that you're not done being created and that you're not done creating. I hope that that's part of your conviction for the year ahead. And if that's the case, let me just observe with you. Like, if you have a physical resolution for the year about the way that you take care of your body, wonderful. Uh, please, please don't let it be about you making your body look the way other people told you your body should look, because that's crap. But if you want to, like, take care of your body, if you want to love this body that you've been given, amazing. Uh, this is the vessel that you've been given for that channel of divine fire to come out into the world. So I'm all for that. But as you do it, just please remember, you are more than flesh and blood, right? Maybe you've got a financial goal for the year, a big resolution. Maybe you want to save more, make more, pay off debt. Maybe you want your spreadsheet to look better at the end of the year than the beginning of the year. Maybe you want to be more financially generous. Let me say that again. Maybe you want to be more financially generous. <laughs> Amazing. Beautiful. But just please remember, like, you, you are more than the numbers on the spreadsheet, but to steward those things well is a profound expression of that divine life in you, probably, right? Maybe you got a professional goal for the year, some 
a new step that you want to take in the workplace, you're hoping for a promotion, a new line of work, you're thinking about jumping jobs, whatever, like amazing, beautiful. But don't you dare let that collapse your view of yourself into the idea that you are only what your job title says or what your promotion means. Like, don't you do it because you are more than that. I think work is sacred. All of our scripture, work is sacred. It is how we give ourselves to the world and make something of it. But don't you dare think that you are just the nine to five or what other people in that nine to five think of you. And the same goes for the relational. Maybe this year you've got a vision where you hope relationships will look different or new or fuller. Maybe, uh, maybe you don't have a special someone in your life and you hope that you will sometime this year. Maybe you've got that special someone, but you're hoping for things to get rearranged in that relationship. Maybe it's not romance. Maybe it's friendship. Maybe it's family. I don't know. But like, as you think about the people around you and what you want in that space in your life, beautiful, we are made for that stuff. But don't you dare think that if there were empty spaces there, that you were less than because of it. Because uh, this holy fire in you, this divine image in you, is a, a stamp inside your spirit, in, within, within you, telling you that you are already in relationship. You already belong. You are already held. You are already in the current of an eternal love that names you and sees you and claims you. So don't you let the relational map of your life tell you anything less because you're more than that. Uh, I'm arguing that like for the year ahead, the worthy path for us is one that honors the image of God that lives out everyone in icon for ourselves and for others. And I know the terrain is difficult and there are some things that we are up against, but I don't think that we are only up against it. I think we have some gifts with us and a God and a community that want that for each other, that want to live that out. Uh, a word that I've um, been listening to, I've been on the receiving end, that's been helping me sit with this, comes uh, through the voice of a prominent leader from the last century, uh, a leader whose work I'd not gone deeply into until recently. Uh, I have a spiritual director I meet with once a month, and he has been frequently pointing me to this person's work. Uh, he lived, uh, he was born like right at the beginning of the last century and lived until 1981. And you may not know his name, but you know the impact of his work because he became a mentor, a sage, an elder figure to many of the most prominent leaders in the civil rights movement in the U.S. and also Gandhi in India. And his name is Howard Thurman. And uh, let's throw that picture up there. Uh, Thurman... Um, was known as a radical leader for civil rights and pouring fuel on the fire of that movement for other people. He was also quite the mystic. Uh, you read his work deeply and you have pages um, that speak just purely and concretely of the world as it is right now, but you find other pages that speak with profound mystery of the eternal as it shows up in the midst of all that work. And a year before he died, he gave a, a baccalaureate speech at Spelman College and the text of the speech has become kind of famous. He's got this refrain through it. It's kind of funny. If you, if you have a chance, listen to the whole thing. I would very much encourage you. Can, you can go online and listen to the whole 35-minute audio of this sermon, and you can let it do better preaching in your life than you've heard today. Um, but he comes out of the gate with this refrain, and he just works this refrain over and over again. He says, there's something within you that waits and watches for the sound of the genuine to come up from within you. There's all this noise, there's all these other things shouting within us and around us, but then there's the sound of the genuine. And to the extent that we are alienated from that which God has given within us, our lives are lesser for it. But to the extent that you can hear that sound and live for it, we are richer for it. Not just your life richer, but we are richer if you can hear that. And so he offers this sort of re repetitive refrain and then he works it further and further as he preaches his sermon. 
And then at the end, he comes back to it one more time, and I thought, better for you to hear his voice than mine. Now, this recording's from 1980. It's a little scratchy. Uh, but I wanted you to sit for just a second and to hear how he ends uh, this uh, now famous sermon about the sound of the genuine and the path that it might call us to this year. There is in every person that which waits, 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 and listens for the sound of the genuine in himself. There is that in every person that waits, waits, and listens for the sound of the genuine in other people. And when these two sounds come together, this is the music God heard. But he said, let us make man in our image. That's the music God heard. And I think we want to hear it too. So um, next week we'll talk more about tools. And I'll try to make a fresh case for how it is that this project that we're a part of is part of that path for how we walk together toward the genuine, toward that divine gift in us and in those around us. And now it's my privilege to invite you to Jesus' table. And I imagine him sitting with his friends there as he shared this meal with them. And I imagine him thinking of moments when he had heard that sound of the genuine in them. And I imagine him hoping that they would realize that to share a meal with him is to be part of his family, which is to say that they bear a family resemblance, which is to say that all that they revered in him, as they would later come to say that he is the image of the invisible God, that he also saw some of that in them, even if they didn't see it in themselves. I hope that this meal will be for us a sustaining meal for the year ahead, that we'll be reminded that we are not just flesh and blood, that we are met with sustenance that goes all the way down into the deepest parts of us, because God's with us on the path. I'm going to invite those who are going to serve you now to join me on the stage. And as they do, I'll remind you that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. And later at that meal, he took a cup and he said, this is the cup of a new covenant, of a promise forged in blood, of an unending faithfulness and love that will never run out for you and for the world. So take and drink deeply. Loving God, I pray that these elements would be for us, your life given, for us and for the world. I pray for all who come into the new year uh, weary or overwhelmed, that this meal would sustain us, would fill us, would nourish us. I pray that for all who come into the new year feeling a revelry about what's ahead, a hopefulness about the freshness of the season, I pray that this meal would be the kind of accompanying party that says, yes, you're not wrong. There's good things, beautiful things ahead. I pray that for all of us, we would sense that this meal feeds us not just in flesh and blood, but in spirit. That the more in us is named and nourished at this table. I pray these things through Christ. We all said, amen. The body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you.
we're going to revisit a song that we sang earlier today. So as you're able and willing, would you stand and join us? Thank you again for being with us our first Sunday of the new year. We look forward to welcoming you back next Sunday or soon. Um, I was thinking, I can't think of a better way to be led in worship in a service about the fact that the deep and meaningful and good in us has little to do with whether we conform to the ways that we've been told we have to look to have Chaz clapping for us. So thank you, Chaz, for leading us again. I think that means a lot to this community. Um, that being said, uh, may you hear the sound of the genuine in you and those around you. May you know in your bones that there is more to you and those around you. May we live for the power and the peace of the image of God and ourselves and others. May we walk that path together in spite of the difficult terrain. And whatever is hard or beautiful or exhilarating or surprising about the year ahead, may we look back and discover that we have learned a little more about how to honor the icon of God in everyone. And may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. See you next week or soon.